Welcome to the Awakening Shalom Podcast. The Awakening Shalom Podcast is an opportunity for digital faith formation at Myers Park Baptist Church that accompanies the Awakening Series, a year-long journey of exploration and discernment which invites all people to come learn about the current social justice issues of the day and how they impact our faith. What we are awakening to is Shalom, the Hebrew word for the peace and beauty that exists when we are living in right relationship with God, ourselves, other human beings, and all created things. Welcome back to our podcast series entitled Field Political Creativity, Race, Class, Faith, and Politics. I am Mia McLean, and I am here with Ben Boswell. And we are back for episode three. Last week, we had a dynamic conversation with Minister Candace Simpson from the Concord Baptist Church of Christ in Brooklyn, New York. And Candace talked a lot about abolition, what it means for her, how do we do abolition, and that our true call is to be abolitionists. And that doesn't necessarily mean cooperating with the state. In fact, usually abolition means becoming an enemy of the state um, in the way that you care for your community. So uh, it was a fruitful conversation. I'm not sure, Ben, if you have any reflections on on that, besides the fact that you all bonded over Pinky in the brain. <laughs> oh, well, once you bond over something like that, it, it gets, uh, there's a bond that's forged through cartoons that is, it's like iron. It's, it's strong. And um, I'm a little embarrassed that I did my Pinky imitation on the last podcast, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see how people take that. A lot of people will not know that cartoon. They'll have, they need to go look it up. If they don't know it and they're like, what is he doing? That weird accent. Go look it up and see if it's accurate. Um, but yeah, no, I thought, um, I thought she really helped us think less, uh, with less anxiety about the concept of abolition. Mm-hmm. As, and particularly for a white dominant community, what, where we get really concerned about the loss of institutions when we think about abolition. So um, white people have been abolitionists before. Uh, and when we look back on history, that is what it meant to be on the right side of history now, as we look back. So I think we need to be open. If we want to be on the right side of history again, we need to be open to that conversation. Yeah. What I loved about what she brought up was um, when we were talking about abolishing the police state um, and how even if we do that, even if we accomplish that, there are folks out there with privilege who will just reinvent that system all over again for themselves so that the work is never really done because there's always going to be people with positions of power and wealth who are going to be able to create a new police state or just like we created a new uh, slavery, right? With the new Jim Crow, with uh, the institution of the prison industrial complex. Sure. Um, yeah, there's always and, gonna be a recreation of the cycle. Well, and if, you, if anyone who is a student of science fiction and reads good science fiction, um, you'll know that this, what, what she said, what Candace brought up has, been, has already been played out in science fiction. If you watch, if you read anything by Philip K. Dick or Ursula Ginn, or, um, you know, even, um, who's your favorite? Um, Octavia Butler. Octavia Butler. There are, the worlds that they've envisioned in the future are worlds where the corporations have the police force, not the government. Yeah. And we're not far from that, really. We're not, we're not far from, we already see corporations employing private police. They've been doing it for a long time, so. I mean, when you think about, like, um, when you think about Handmaid's Tale, which was written, what, 30-something years ago? Yeah. Um, Octavia Butler's work, The Parable of the Sower, The Parable of the Talents, and some of her other things that were written probably 20, 30 years ago, maybe. I mean, she's predicting a time that's that's already here in many ways and not far away in other ways. So this stuff is coming. Handmaid's Tale, it's, it's, <laughs> it's here. It's coming. No, and what happens when, what happens in 20, 10, 20 years when it's the tech companies that are the ones that are employing the police force? Mm. That's the scary thing. I mean, we think it's going to be like big oil or banks, you know, but we're quickly moving into a time where the tech companies are the largest and uh, most powerful, sometimes bigger than the entire U.S. economy and GDP. So uh, we we have to think critically about every business and corporation. 
Well, that's, that's a relevant point. Um, we haven't been talking as much about current events, but I saw this um, conversation, I, I would call it a conversation on Twitter, where um, somebody was criticizing Kamala Harris's sister, uh, Kamala Harris's sister, Maya, who was saying something, and this person came at her basically suggesting um, that Kamala is the perfect pick because her sister is married to a big wig in Silicon Valley or a big wig in the tech world, right? Mm -hmm. And that the tech world needs, in order to align themselves with the liberal, the liberal side of things, they need somebody like a Kamala Harris who they're going to be able to have uh, open conversation with about whatever their needs are, uh, whatever the situation is. So there's already people uh, suggesting that it, it's Silicon Valley and, and the big tech companies that are really invested in whoever's going to win oh. this election for their own personal gain. They're already buying for that, that top power that we've seen from banks and oil companies. Sure, and it's a good reminder to us that does, just because, again, back to the political parties, Politics is not defined by partisanship. Partisanship and politics are different words. There has always been politics. There has not always been American partisanship. And the partisanship is a trap that leads us into imagining that one of two options, because it's a polarity, is already problematic, that a polarity can, that we can align ourselves with a polarity and therefore one of those two more, closely or closely represents our Christian political uh, perspective or political theology or our, or our Christian way of being politics. And, and certainly there's an argument to be made at times in history where one is more closely aligned with the vision of Jesus than another. So I'm not, I'm not trying to be anti-pragmatic and overly idealistic here. And at the same time, to completely and totally imagine that one could not become quickly a force for evil in the world. Um, that the Democrats could not quickly become a force for evil in the world or are not already. Or that the Republicans cannot become a force for evil in the world insofar as their movement has been directed by the financial and uh, economic aims of a particular corporate class. Um, that's that's part, of, part of that goes back to that illusion that we have that we think things are more pure uh, than they really are. And we think that we are less manipulated than we really, we're, we're not as easily manipulated as we actually really are. We think we're not easily manipulated, but in fact, we really are easily manipulated um, in a democracy because there's so much freedom for corporate interests to use marketing and other tools to change our thoughts, not just to change our patterns and our behaviors. Um, and so we have to think of, we have to be on guard about all that. Uh, we have to be looking at things. You have to have a deeper, like to our, the point of this podcast, we have to have a deeper and more rooted sense of what is good and what is just that then aligns our political engagement so as we do not fall into the trap of partisanship. Yeah. And I mean, that's very, that's very uh, pertinent because one of the lectionary texts for this week, and we'll come back to this at the end, is that Matthew, uh, is it Matthew 22, where Jesus says, render what is Caesar, render what is, uh, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Right. So that this, uh, this is talking about taxes and things, but this idea that a political party is going to save us, a political party can still, uh, even if it's yours, can still be Caesar and mm -hmm. not dying for your best interests, right? There's still this separation between what God has called us and what and, and to do and be and what the politics, the political nature, the political sphere and institutions are trying to do. And that's don't what, a lie. No, right, exactly. And that's, that's the text I preached actually after the last election, that text on, on the Sunday after. And it, it was helpful to people because Jesus there is rejecting both the Herodians and the, Fer the, and the, Sadduce the Sadducees and the Herodians there who are kind of vying for his attention. Two different political ways of engagement in the world are both trying to trap him. If he says one thing, he aligns with one. If he says another thing, he aligns with another. And Jesus' critique is so much deeper than either of their arguments. He's, he's brilliantly able to evade weighing in on one of their, one of their kind of limited narrow scopes by saying, First of all, the fact that you're even holding a coin betrays you, right? Like he, Jesus has to get one of their coins because he doesn't have one on him. 
that's one of the brilliant parts of the path that people miss. Like the fact you even have a coin, you're already in it. So don't come to me trying to trap me in this tax debate that you've already become complicit in. Secondarily, you know, uh, I'm not going to choose between the two of you. I'm going to tell you that both of y'all are wrong, basically, <laughs> by saying that actually, you know, it's about our, our, our divine relationship, not our relationship to Caesar. See, a lot of people think that when Jesus says that he's saying, give to Caesar what is due to Caesar mm -hmm. and give to God what is due to God, and that there are actually things due to Caesar. But <laughs> that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying there is nothing due to Caesar. Right. Is gods. There's nothing, there's no spheres. See, we want to take it and turn it into spheres, and we're going to come back to that in a little bit here in this podcast. Oh my God. You're, you're, I, so I was in my electionary group yesterday, and Minister Candace is a part of this group, and she actually said the exact same thing. She said, if you were to give to God what is God's, you would have nothing left for Caesar because hmm. the idea is that everything belongs to God. That's right. Man, Candace and I, we are on the same wavelength. You are, you are. It's so that. We just watch the same stuff, Pinky in the Brain. That's where we get all our theology from. Exactly. So as usual, we open with a quote. Um, this week's quote is from, now, Ben, I can't pronounce his name uh, correctly. Juan and Witch? Juan and Witch? I think it sounds like a V, actually. Von and Bench. Von and Yeah. Von and Bench. Yeah, he's interesting. Uh, interesting person from the book Political Worship, and we're, we're bringing this up because we're going to be talking a lot about how our worship practices are inherently political yes. in nature and, and the different liturgical practices that we do that can be political. So um, there's a several quotes here, but I'm going to quote a few. So one of them is, in the proper sense, every public service of worship in which a Christian congregation engages has a specific political character since it is the assembly of Christian citizens in a praise of a God who rules on high. Mm. Another uh, quote that, that uh, he has is, politics is whatever touches the affairs of citizens, mm. uh, which I think is great. It's a great kickoff to our conversation. Where do we see politics in worship? Before we do that, Ben, let's do some definitions. What are some of your definitions of politics of theopolitics um uh, we can get we can yeah. get into a whole bunch of branch webs uh, uh, things overlaying and overlapping here but what is your definition of politic or the political so burn and a lot of modern scholars have returned back to an older definition of politics that kind of skips over uh, or rejects what Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and others thought that politics is really what the state does and or what the uh, the dictator does or whoever the head of the state does. That is the definition of politics. And a lot of our, you can see in America, a lot of us have fallen into that trap where we think everything is determined by what's happening Everything political is what's happening from the top down. But in fact, an older definition of politics, um, which is more helpful, is from Aristotle, and uh, which Hannah Arendt, a Jewish scholar, returns to uh, in the 20th century, which is that, as Byrne says, politics is basically whatever happens in the lives of citizens. Uh, and so anything that citizens do together is in public is political. Um, and even some things they do in private, um, which is why in America, for instance, sexual activity, which we mostly imagine should be private, has been politicized. So we can think about how basically anything two people do together, whether it's behind closed doors or out in the open, is a political activity, which means that almost all of life is political. E everything we do because we, we don't really live as solitary individuals. We live in families, we live in communities, we live in neighborhoods, we live in cities, um, we live in towns. Um, very few people really live completely independent and off the map in the wilderness somewhere. Uh, and even those people benefit from the fact that they have the privilege to be able to do that, uh, either economically or politically. So uh, Aristotle anything that happens in public between two people, and of course, what happens in public between two people? The church, right? It, a gathering of citizens. So the word church, ecclesia in the New Testament, basically was 
stolen from Roman politics uh, out of the Greek language. And the word was being used at the time before the church existed to describe any time a group of citizens assembled together in public. Now, there have been throughout history many times in which governments or states have banned the public assembly of people for all sorts of different purposes. Uh, and so, and that happens even now. And in that time, it was illegal for the church to gather for the purpose in which they were gathering. And so the illegality of that from the very beginning is a reminder that the church was born as an illegal entity, an illegal assembly of people in the middle of the polis at the time. So the word church itself always from the very beginning meant a radical political act of gathering in Christ's name over and against Caesar. We, we can't ignore that. And, and it still remains to this day, a political act just to gather. So this is before we even do anything, just coming together outdoors, indoors, in a space, whenever the people come together for that purpose, they are doing something political. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking a lot about the, the term sphere and one of the definitions that um, has come up for this, for this particular word has been the assumptions or principles related to or inherent in a sphere, theory, or thing, um, especially when concerned with power and status in society. So we're seeing this is all relational here. If you're talking about a sphere, we're talking about a community, a grouping of people, um, which is interesting because uh, when I was in graduate school, there were people love to throw around the word like, identity politics and black identity whatever whatever whoever's identity politics queer identity politics and um i always thought it was so interesting because it almost felt like you can't talk about identity without it being political so why do you need to say identity politics why do you need to yeah. say christian identity that doesn't make sense i mean it makes sense but it almost felt like a double I don't know, cl clarification of a clarification of the term, but anyway. Um, so that's important that it's everything that we do is political. So what does that mean in, 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 in terms of church, right? In terms of our worship practices and particularly around this conversation of church not supposed to be a political space and, you know, there's this. Yeah, I mean, that's it. The question of spheres is so helpful, right? Like what we, and we talked about this in the first one about how the white dominant congregations throughout American history have been very, very good at compartmentalizing their faith from their pol politics. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Now, there's a historical lineage theologically of Christians who are wedded to empire who then try to create this argument for spheres as a way of dealing with what it, with the ugliness of empire. So you see early on, I'm gonna do a kind of broad argument here. Early on, Augustine says, okay, well, yeah, yeah, church and empire are together, but there's the city of God and the city of humanity or city of man, he calls it. And he has a whole book called the city of God, right? But it's really, the, the title is really city of God, city of man. And he's creating these two spheres. And what he wants to talk about is how they sometimes overlap with each other and they're analogous to each other, but you can live in both at the same time. That's what he's wanting to create. What is he doing? He's third century. He's trying to justify Constantine's domination of the church and what's going to come to be Holy Roman Empire, the, the, the Holy Roman Empire. And it's going to talk about politics, political engagement of churches, it's also going to give us things like uh, the foundation for why Christians care about um, infant children who are hungry and caring for the poor and the widows and hospitals and all sorts of good civic ideas. But it's also going to justify Christian participation in all the evil of empire as well, including war, colonization, etc. And we're going to carry those things with us. And theologians throughout history are going to try to do the same thing that Augustine did, which is to create these spheres, right? So Luther, who, of course, Protestant Reformation, one of the most important theologians, uh, terribly anti-Semitic, but very influential, he came up with this idea called the two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of man, or the kingdom of earth, and the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. And he also compartmentalizes them into these spheres. And 
what one of the famous arguments that he uses is that you can be a Christian executioner. Because when you're an executioner, you're operating in the sphere of the kingdom of man or heaven. I mean, kingdom of earth. Sorry, I'm mean, using their patriarchal language, but but and but you can take off the mask and go to church and you're fine and you don't have to confess for your execution and he's not even talking about the politicians he's talking about the person actually chopping off the head right which was the practice of execution in luther's time um so that what are they doing he's trying to figure out how to justify christian participation in very evil political practices right because empire and church are so wedded how do we create an, an ethic? Instead of critiquing the wedding and the marriage of empire and church, he's going to try to give us some practical ways to live, it, live out this world. This idea then gets conflated with the concept of the separation of church and state in American life, which is really, in most people's imagination, the separation of church and politics. But that was never the intention. The intention was to reject the establishment of a state church for the whole country in order to preserve religious freedom and liberty of conscience, not to separate politics and church forever from each other. And imagine that one is the sphere of politics, and then there's a sphere of church stuff over here, and they're not supposed to interlap. And, and so there's these, this, this spheres idea keeps becoming such a big uh, theological component in Western religious and, uh, and theology. Uh, and I just want one more thing to say, and then I want to talk about this with you about it. So how does this become part of our lifetime, my parents and your parents are, and, and our current church? Well, we hear a lot of people talk about right now, um, I know you hear, I want, you know, I listen to the news all day long. And it's so awful. And America's things are so bad in America. We're so divided. When I come to church, I want to hear something about love and peace, something that really makes me feel good. Something makes, or at least just let's keep all that stuff out of here. Let's create a refuge from all that in the church. So that when you come to the church, it's a refuge. And this is not just a generational thing. People of all ages think this, that I, I want to keep that stuff separate. Keep NPR and Fox News and MSNBC out of the church and let the church be a refuge, a spiritual refuge from that world. That idea, anytime you hear that idea, you should know that it has an origin. All of our ideas have origins. And the origin of that idea is the separate spheres idea comes from 19th century gender ideology. And I'll trace the history a little bit for you here. So in the early 19th century, it was the first time during the Industrial Revolution that men began to leave home to go to work. It may seem like that's, that's been going on for a long time, but it hasn't. Most American men worked on farms until the 19th century. And during the Industrial Revolution, men began to leave home and farm, which was the same place, and go into the workplace and work in these dirty, horrific environments of the Industrial Revolution um, and try to earn money to provide and support their family. And so what we have to do in that time when men are now outside of the household and there's not this quintessential farm idea of what the family is, where a man's role is to work outside on the farm and a woman's role is to work outside on the farm, and they're both working the farm together, men and women side by side, also all working the farm. Now home becomes the sphere of women because they're the ones there all the time. And the workplace becomes the sphere of men. This is all familiar for those of us who know the feminist revolution, right? And, and, but what develops also is a, a, what's called a separate spheres or a cult of true womanhood, a cult of the lady that corresponds to the public and private split. So now when men leave the farm, now we split the home from work. Work is now something we do outside the home. Mm. All, this, all this has changed during coronavirus, which is so fun, right? <laughs> It's like totally messed this up. But imagine yourself back into this world where the men are leaving for the first time. Now everything that happens at home is the woman's duties and sphere. Child rearing, farming, gardening, cooking, cleaning. Everything that happens at work is the men's sphere. And the way that Americans begin to describe these two spheres is that as public and private, 
the home becomes now, the farm becomes a private place and the work becomes the public place, which is not really actually accurate, right? But it, this is the way they're trying to divide the world. The public sphere becomes the sphere of work and politics and men's work, men's stuff. And the private sphere then becomes the sphere of home and religion. Hmm. And church becomes womanized and feminized. It becomes women's work. Religion gets privatized and womanized and feminized and separated from the dirty, amoral, competitive, dog-eat-dog capitalism of the economic process of work that men must be involved in. And so these spheres are created. So what, what then is the cult of true womanhood comes up? And that is that the, the woman's job, it's a beautiful thing, Mia, you're going to love this. The woman's job is to create a refuge for a man who is having to do all this hard stuff, okay? He's having to do all this really hard stuff. He's having to go to work every day. And so they, the woman's job in this is to create a refuge, a place of peace for a man to come after they leave the dirty, immoral, and hard world of work in an industry. And the church then also, women are supposed to create a religious environment that is also a refuge from the dirty and immoral and harsh world of working in an industrial environment and a world free from the political engagement that's so hard and ugly. And so this refuge, the home and the church are supposed to be a refuge for men. So Mia, if you could just help make the church, for me, more of a refuge, that would be a great help here. And, and, uh, and, but, and yet, none of these women had leadership positions. That's also the, the sad <laughs> patriarchal irony. And so what, what I wanna, why I bring that up is that the, this concept of making the church a refuge from the political, the harsh world of politics, mm -hmm. is necessarily a patriarchal idea that holds up and reinforces 19th century gender norms of yeah. what worlds are supposed to be. The, com the difference of male-female, the compartmentalization of public-private, and the compartmentalization of church and work, and church and politics. And every time we say the language of refuge, we are hearkening back to this cult of true womanhood and the separate spheres ideology that is, that is actually just in putting patriarchy back on the church. Yeah, wow. I might also go and add, add to that, though we're gonna talk more about class in the, the final episode. Um, I would also add to that, that for many working men in particular, church was a place to be somebody. Mm. Um, to, to not have to be oppressed by capitalism in the out. So there was the separation where I had to go do my work for whoever the man was, but I'm gonna come to church and I'm gonna be somebody. I'm gonna be deacon so-and-so. I'm gonna be minister, lay minister so-and-so. Yeah. Whatever, whatever the title was, you had a sense of pride and ownership because you had power in the space of the church that you did not have at work. Right. where you would just blind man number 35 or whatever, whatever it was, you know, yeah. In, yeah. and today. So I, I think that also adds some color to it. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think certainly the spheres operate differently in different communities of economic privilege. Right. Communities who are, are also impacted by, who are racialized differently, right? So, so in, in the white community, the way the sphere operates often is to to protect this is going to sound disgusting but it is to protect white wealthy landowning men from having their religion used as a critique for their business practices mm -hmm. i mean rockefeller did not want to hear his pastor talk about his treatment of 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 workers mm -hmm. so if we have this spheres idea ideology, then the church becomes a place that Rockefeller can come and never have to hear about the exploitative practices that he's engaged in, in his working and exploit. And not only that, but Rockefeller's business managers and on down through the, through the managerial class. Mm -hmm. uh, and, then, and then of course, what does it also do to the workers then? It, 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 it creates this sort of double consciousness for them where they might be being oppressed, but in the church, 
they're being told we're all equal. Mm -hmm. Everybody's great. We're all going to heaven as long as we follow this particular pattern. But yeah. that's a lie materially. It's a material lie, right? Using a spiritual idea to create a material lie. And yeah. so the, the poor then are put in a position where they think the spheres are separate too. And, and that, oh, it's not, not a big deal that they're being oppressed on earth because in heaven, we're all going to be equal. Right. So we're, we're seeing, so while, while this was created to uplift sort of the, the wealthy white working class, it was also uh, embraced by lower class white folk, black folk, uh, people across the spectrum right. who embraced this liturgical reality, even though it was actually working against them. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like the way that just good, um, good old-fashioned salvation theology has worked in American history, um, the, which is a very, very new phenomenon. The idea that we can pray a prayer and get, become born again and are saved is an extremely new theological invention by evangelicals in America. Mm -hmm. And I'm suspicious now at this point in my life of any theology created in America or any denomination created in America because it take up, takes on too much of the, the life of what American culture looks like and not enough of what Jesus wanted us to live, how Jesus taught us how to live. Um, Southern Baptists are a great example of that, right? So <laughs> we have to critique ourselves. But this idea that somehow the theology of salvation, of praying a prayer and then you get to go to heaven and how that, how that justifies immoral behavior. Think about how that works, right? Like I can pray a prayer and think about the once saved, always saved idea. Mm -hmm. I have this happen at a moment and no matter what I do, right. for the rest of my life, I'm good to go. I'm in God's, I'm in the bosom of Abraham. Mm -hmm. I mean, how, how that justifies any kind of ethical behavior on earth. Murder, right? They're good. Murderers are good. Genocidal maniacs are good. Rapists are good. Doesn't matter what they do. And that creates this sort of like really strange ethical environment where, where we can somehow our moral behavior in the world as it is, in the material world, is distinct from our eternal destiny and distinct from our relationship with God. When in reality, Jesus has taught over and over again, love of God and neighbor, the horizontal and the vertical, are intersect together at the same axis and are are really one and our relationship with god and our relationship with neighbor are the same mm -hmm. how we treat neighbor is how we treat god and vice versa but we by using creating this heaven theology this sort of new south soteriology have have if pulled apart i mean maybe put in spheres is another way to put it morality and politics is over here and salvation is over here mm. And yeah. I just don't think that's been healthy for the church in America. Yeah. So how does this framework show up tangibly in our worship experiences, right? We've talked a lot about how we got to this point, but how does that show up tangibly? And I ask this because we have a certain liturgical standard at Myers Park Baptist. Other places have their liturgical standards. And yeah. politics shows up in different ways, not just in the sermon moment, but littered throughout the, throughout the liturgy that's in the service. So you think about a prayer of confession and, or you mm. think about um, even the church at prayer is bringing in some aspects that, that are political because they're relating to people and the outer world. So how does that show up and, and how can it show up? How can we reimagine how that shows up? Um, it's sort of what I'm, I'm mulling around with. In yeah, right now. That's, I love the way you segued into that. So I'll make a bold claim. Uh, I'm, I don't like to make bold claims, but I'll make one here. Um, the sermon is the least political part of the worship service. No matter what's said. Say that sermon, again for the folks in the back. <laughs> the sermon is the least political part of the worship service. Um, no matter what is said, even if it is extraordinarily critical of America or its practices, or even critical of a political party or candidate or president, it is the least political act that we engage in. Here's why. It is, uh, it is very similar to other kinds of forms of expression in American life. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is one person 
speaking how the Holy Spirit has led them to speak and called them to speak. It is received corporately, but it does not have to be received. It is a free word that can either be freely delivered and freely received or freely rejected. So, you know, the, the political import of that is, you know, seems sort of, it's actually really pretty low. Mm -hmm. uh, now in America it has give, been given a lot of power, but it's pretty low. The, probably the most political thing that we do in worship is communion. Hmm. That's, that's the most political activity that we engage in as a church. It is the most radical thing that we say. It's the most radical thing that we do. And a lot of churches do it every single Sunday. I mean, we only do it occasionally, um, mostly because it just takes too long. Um, but, you know, other people do it every week. It is the most radically political thing that, that a church does. Uh, and I can, I can say a little bit more about that. But every liturgical act, the offering, I mean, we're literally collecting money from people in the worship service. That, yeah. How can that not be political? <laughs> and I would say different types of offering collection practices are, they have varying politics. So when I think about the churches where you actually have to stand up and like be ushered down and there are some churches that say, here's the $50 line, here's the $100 line, here's the $500 line. My, my great uncle who was a pastor used to do that. My mom would just sit in, sit in the pew. She wouldn't go up at all because she was like, I can't stand that. <laughs> that practice, yeah. That's, but, I think that's pretty rough practice, actually. But It is, it is. But that's political. I mean, so, yeah. so passing it in the pew, it's like you kind of see who's giving, but not really. But like when you have to actually stand up mm. and parade your body, which is a politic in itself, down the aisle. Sure. We do that in Rice Bowl. Now, Rice Bowl is all, is all above and beyond, right? And it's only chump change, dollars here, dollars there. But, um, you know, I think... I do like the, the, the act of liturgically standing and mm -hmm. as a part of our offertory practice. Actually, Bern Vonnevench in his book, Political Worship, talks a lot about the offering and mm -hmm. how it originated and how it has changed over history in churches and how there are different times when it was more radically political than others because of the, of the way the money was then distributed back to members of the church, almost as if it was a form of redistribution of wealth. So rich folks would put in more than poor, and then they would that's take the money. And that's what it's supposed to be, right? Yeah. You know, principle, yeah. Right. So there is this, this idea. It's supposed to harken back to Acts 2 and Acts 4, where mm -hmm. they, everybody came and shared, gave it to the apostles, and the apostles distributed it evenly, right? So you, everybody brings what they have, and lot, some have more than others, and then you give it to the apostles, and the apostles distribute it evenly. So, you know, there's a lot of room for uh, exploitation in that, right? Because <laughs> the apostles want to take a little bit for themselves and some take more than others. And then some don't distribute it evenly. And, um, but that was the original intention of what the church, now nothing more radical than what we see in Acts 2 and Acts 4 about the church's economic engagement as an alternative economic community to a, a world of have and, haves and have-nots. Mm -hmm. um, and that the, the church bent on economic equality from the beginning um, so that the offering harkens back to that radical practice. Communion harkens back to think about how radical communion is. It's a it's a recalling of the night Jesus was betrayed and arrested, mm. arrested by the state. It's that night. We remember that night for the rest of eternity. We return to the night Jesus was arrested. We return to that moment in the garden when he told them not to kill in his name. We return to the kangaroo court that tried him in the middle of the night and before people were woke, woke up in the morning, he was already condemned to die. A, a court that then tortured him, even though he was innocent, tortured his body. And then we can talk about torture, American practices of torture, South American practices of torture, torture all over the place. Then executed him as a criminal between two insurrectionists for treason. Mm-hmm. And then we recall that night and his death on the cross every time we, so we're remembering an executed criminal and his death. And then we're saying, take and eat it, this. So, so this is good. So what makes, what makes Jesus different from if we replaced his name with, you know, which, which in one of my communion liturgies I did like six years ago, I would I replace Jesus's name with like Trayvon Martin and some other people, right? Well, you know, 
if, if we did that one Sunday, it would be like, oh my God, this church is political. I'm never coming back here. But what makes that different, right? To, to say mm, it's, the it's the same thing. It's the same. Yeah, it's the same. Any, and now, now it'd be easy. Some people get confused here and they want to put the name of anyone who was murdered right. on the table. But it's people who were executed through state violence. Meaning right. either those who were executed by agents of the state, as Jesus was, Roman soldiers, yeah. tried and criminalized and executed through political intervention or non-intervention by Pilate and the Sanhedrin, um, but also people who are executed under the law of the state and exonerated. So Trayvon would fit under that through the, right. the, through the uh, stand your ground castle laws that harken back to white supremacists. In yeah. that, that exonerated George Zimmerman. So anything that would be an execution justified or exonerated by state entities, the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the DA's office, mm -hmm. harkens back to a time when Jesus was himself um, tried, executed, uh, tortured and executed. And then those who did it had no penalty of any kind zero penalty were totally exonerated by their actions even the soldier even the roman soldier who says which i always hate this truly this man was the son of god well then what are you going to do about it right right you say that what are you going to do about it go kill Pilate or something do something you know like don't don't just say that like what does that matter that's some bs you know i don't i don't like that guy that gets me angry and then think about the think about the women coming to the tomb. They're afraid for their lives. Yeah. Well, they've posted Roman soldiers outside the tomb. They think they're going to come steal his body and try to pretend that he was raised because the idea of his resurrection was so powerful. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the resurrection is then a political act of the raising of a criminal, right? A Roman, uh, someone who is a, who is an insurrectionist in Rome, who was so dangerous to Roman ideology and. And, and the particular Sanhedrin philosophy that he was, you know, threatened. I mean, I just, we, this is what we're recalling. We're not just saying, oh, you know, God loves you. Right. Yeah, sure, right. We're saying that, but we're saying this is the specific way God decided to love you is to come in this form and to die at the hands of the state to show you a new path. Like that's, that's what we mean. Uh, not just warm fuzzies and warm feelings. Um, I wish, I think Baptists have lost this, this sense, right? Because baptism is supposed to be political. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, when we have this liturgy of baptism, we, you know, we, we say in that liturgy that you are, you know, the litur these baptismal liturgies, we repeat the ones that Paul had. You are no longer male or female. You are no longer slave or free. You're no longer... Um, you know, uh, Greek, Gentile, your, your ethnic identity has been transcended, your gender identity has been transcended, your economic identity has been transcended. Uh, you are now part of a community where that is not the determining factor of who you are. Well, and like I was saying earlier, identity is political. So now you've taken on this new identity, you've taken on almost a new politic, right? So you know, so you're citizens not, of a different world. What does Paul? Yeah. What did it say in Ephesians and Hebrews? We're we're citizens of heaven, citizens of another kingdom. Yeah, which yeah. is of course political language, right? Um, and we have to re wrestle with that. Baptism, even in Baptist history, the practice of baptizing people again was an illegal act that Anabaptists did because they did not believe the marriage of church and empire was legitimate. It was blasphemous heresy. And they created new communities in an act of political resistance to baptize people who had already been baptized as infants. Because remember, at that time, to be baptized as an infant, you were becoming a Roman citizen, mm -hmm. a citizen of the Holy Roman Empire, or whatever empire you were part of, and a Christian at the same time. That's my problem with infant baptism, not necessarily ecumenically, but from its history, is that it was a joining of state and church. Yeah, we're becoming a citizen of empire and a citizen of, of heaven at the same time. So it shows the conflation of these two. But Baptists said, no, that is not the same. You are, we are citizens of another kingdom. So we're going to rebaptize the true believers who have left the empire, who are, who are standing against empire and creating a new community. So baptism was first a political, an act of political resistance 
not just a spiritual act. Now they did it because they saw in scripture that in the Bible, most people were baptized as believers. So they saw, they, that's how they saw the empires wedded with the church as a problem through a reading of scripture in the Renaissance when it was finally able to be read by the average layperson. Um, but you know, it's always been political and spiritual. So when we do it now with young people or adults, we are, we are doing something political. Yeah. I also think that prayers of confession are political. Mm, in that they, yeah. they signify a, 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 an accepted ethos of whatever the community you are a part of professes, right? Or, or just displays, right? So um, I don't always say prayers of confession because <laughs> so, sometimes I'm reading it like, I don't know if I agree with this, right? But there's a certain, um, mm -hmm. a certain if, you, if you are a member of a church, so any kind of covenantal, everybody recites it together. That's a political, that's a political thing. It's like seeing the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, I know. Can you imagine if we had people have, they had to recite parts of my sermon? This is what I mean by it's not that political. Right, right, because the prayer of confession is far more radical. We're at we're asking everybody to say it. That's crazy, right? And the confession changes every week, so you can't even like get used to it. You never know what's going to be written on that paper, and so you you show up there, and you're like, I don't know about this today, but uh. right, or the, or the Lord's prayer, "Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven," is about as political a statement as you can possibly ever make. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive our debts. I mean. I mean, it's like, why, we've made these things so common. We've, <laughs> we've taken all the power out of them because we're scared of what they might do to us. We're scared of what kind of church they might create. Kind of well, rap people. I do like forgive us our debts. I really want my debt forgiven. So whoever's president, I hope that you <laughs> forgive my debt. <laughs> it's a jubilee promise. Yeah, I don't care who, nobody in the Bible, they, ever, they, they don't care who gives the jubilee. They just want a jubilee. Yeah, just, just forgive my debt, please. <laughs> Take I mean, some of the when you're actually in debt, pick what you mean. <laughs> so um, one of the other things that I want to share is that there are other ways to have um, a, a political or liturgical practice um, in your, your, your worship service. And I, I went to a church in Brooklyn a couple of years ago, and part of the worship service um, was signing letters to, or writing letters to, I think it was council people or senators. I don't remember who it was, but it was local or state. It wasn't a national campaign, yeah. right? And we were writing letters about something that was happening in New York City at the time. I'm not sure. Um, but that was actually a part of the worship service. I've also wow. been in worship services where people were actually handed out, like, sign up to vote, you know, <laughs> in the middle of service. We're not doing that go to the table outside thing. We're not doing that, you know, do it online. We're actually going to add this into our worship service. How do you feel about that? And how do you feel about, would that be, I mean, obviously, it's, a, it's depending on the, the ethos of the space, but could that be something that communities embraced, even though it is overtly political, if that makes sense? Um, I wish we did. I think that we, so, you know, this weekend, uh, as we're talking right now, is Souls of the Poles weekend is coming up. I mean, we're headed toward it, where a lot of churches, a lot of black churches, so let me be specific, are going to end their worship service early with a march to vote. Hmm. Because there is a weekend, this weekend early voting opens up and you can actually vote on Sundays, which just remember how political it is that you can't vote on Sunday. That voting day is on a damn Tuesday. Yeah. Um, and how ridiculous that is from a suppression perspective. Anyway, the history of American voting practices themselves are contained this politics of preventing white working class and poor black folks from trying to be able to get to the polls because they're actually at work during the day, most of the day, and they have to spend their whole evening standing in line. Instead of having Sunday voting or right. Saturday voting, right? So, so churches will end their worship service and conclude their liturgical act. Their benediction will be a march, right? Uh, praying with their feet to the polls to, to vote. Now, most people know who's being voted for in those kinds of situations, just based on demographics. Mm -hmm. But I don't think any pastors going into the voting booth with their members. That's illegal. Yeah. So each person could go to the poll and vote in a differential way from their neighbor. It's not about partisanship. 
It is about participation in democracy. Yeah. How and, valuable that is. Yeah. And like I was saying on the first episode, for so many of the people in my context growing up, it wasn't even about the national level, right? So you would go to the polls. And <laughs> I have a friend in New Orleans who tweeted last night. Uh, she said, I'm actually going to read up on who's running for whatever, such and such, because I'm not just going to vote for somebody based on the fact that I know their cousin. Mm. Because that's a huge thing in New Orleans, like, oh, I, that's, that's so-and-so's cousin. We're voting for him or, you know. Um, but so, you know, you would go to the polls and there'll be a long list of Democrats running for council seats or or Senate. So it wasn't about the party. It was about just showing up and, and, and being yeah. there to have your voice be heard for whoever you voted for. Right. That's right. Yeah. And that we are missing a lot of that in white dominant spaces because we have created those spheres where we can't see how, you know, we're not giving you a template to write the letter to your congressperson. We're just asking you to write a letter to the congressperson. Um, You know, one of the things you said uh, when we were thinking about doing this podcast, you you had a question, uh, I remember, about the woke movement. And there's a lot of we can we can talk we can have a whole other podcast on this and maybe we need to but, but um the attacks uh, there's a there was a nice blog post today about how attacks on the woke movement are really attacks on love of neighbor they're not attacks on they're not they're not attacks on um some kind of nefarious scheme they're attacks on people who are awakening to their need to love their neighbor differently and yeah. practically and less from afar, and less with uh, less patronizing ways, um, and to actually do material things that will change their their neighbor's livelihood. Right? It's that old analogy we talked about. I think I shared this story where you know somebody's throwing babies in the river, and you come out and you see the babies floating down the river, and so you start going into the river and pulling the babies out to save their lives, or you also could go up the river and find out who's throwing babies in the river. Yeah. Um, and, you know, both of those are needed. They're both needed and they're both holy. And one sounds like, um, you know, charity and the other one sounds like advocacy. Yeah. And they're both holy and we have to hold them together. Otherwise, we end up either A, only focusing on who's throwing the babies in and not on caring for babies or we care only for babies and never change throwing them in. We're just constantly triaging a problem that will never change. So it's gotta be both. Yeah. That's a great segue into our final segment. So we usually wrap up with theological imagination and you were talking about this attack on wokeness, which I'm not even going to engage the person who gave a sermon about it or whatever he (laughs) did. Um, You know, I don't even have time for it. It's just so tired. It's tired. tired. But but I will say that whenever they try to shape their argument as something biblical, it just always goes south for me because I guess this person was trying to say, like, being woke is not what Jesus calls us to. And Jesus says, be awake several times in the Gospels. And I'm sitting there like... (laughs) He has parables on that. Yeah, stay awake. I mean, Mark 13, Jesus says, stay woke at the right. end of the chapter. Mm-hmm. No one knows the day of the hour. Now, his whatever woke meant for Jesus or being awake or being alert, whatever the, the translation is from the Greek, right? Which is like alertness, staying abreast of information, whatever you choose, right? Jesus is literally telling the people, you need to keep sleep with one eye open, right? Like you, yeah. can, you can no longer sleepwalk through this thing we call life that is actually harmful to the population and and so when this man is saying this i'm just like you know sitting there rolling. Oh, right. well you know these uh, these fools and i'll just be honest these fools are reading everything that should be read metaphorical they're reading literal and everything that should be read literal they're reading metaphorical right and so they got the they, they, they don't have a basic understanding of 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 early first century literary theory therefore they have no clue and the Bible is just a weapon in their hands, and it's a it's a bad one. So, if you read what is supposed to be literal metaphor, like think about it, right? They're not they're not reading the literal stuff where Jesus actually tells you to do justice, right? Care for the poor and the widow. They don't want to hear that when that's tied to the woke movement. They don't want to, they don't want to quote that stuff. And then they're taking so they take all that metaphorically. Yeah. And then the the stuff that should be metaphor, right? 
uh, they're taking, <laughs> you know, they're taking all super literally. And that is just unfortunate because uh, it, it makes this common text that we have and share impossible to share. It's a, it's a tactic of disunity. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's done through just basic ignorance. They don't understand the difference between metaphor and uh, literal um, historical c claims. So, I mean, what can we do about ignorance? Um, you know, when seminaries are churning out pastors who talk this way. Other times it's just straight up, they're doing it intentionally. They know exactly what they're doing. You know, yeah. they know, um, I mean, think about the disciples in the garden on the night that Jesus is killed, right? And the night that Jesus is arrested. Is that supposed to be a real story about people falling asleep in the garden? Mm -hmm. Come on. Yeah. What, what does that matter if they fell asleep that they were tired? Do you think Jesus has come to me, all you who are weary? Do you think Jesus cared if they were tired? No, Jesus is saying, don't you get what's happening? Yeah. You're getting ready to try me in the middle of the night and you're asleep. They're getting right. ready to kill an innocent person and you're asleep. It's a metaphor for our slumber, right? It's a King preached a whole sermon about our Rip Van Winkle, right? And how we're all sleeping, right? In the midst of a time when people are being killed. And, and that's what Jesus is saying. He says the same thing about the generation when he says, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. You know, we, we, um, we played for you and you did not mourn. Basically, he's saying like, you're so, you're so apathetic and so asleep. You wouldn't know whether we're celebrating or crying. Yeah. You, know, you wouldn't know what to celebrate or cry for because you don't understand what's happening. You're so, you're, you're so numb to it and immune to it. And so, yeah, I mean, <laughs> stay woke is a consistent biblical message. <laughs> but, but what it means is, of course, up for lots of interpretation. Yeah, and but I think that for the for the sake of theopolitical imagination, I think that our call is to this call of a constant alertness and awareness, right? Sure. I mean, like for instance, I would not counsel anyone to show up naked for the apocalypse, Mia. <laughs> I sure hope not. I don't <laughs> be vigilant. Get ready. Get prepared. Yeah. Morally, morally, politically. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is our call. Our call is to, to constantly be awakening. I mean, that's that's our awakening shalom, the theme for the podcast. And awakening is our series for the for the years that the past couple of years. So we are constantly awakening or being awakened or staying alert, or staying woke. And that's our call if we're going to really do this work. Um, if we're going to really be able to be theopolitically creative. Yeah, I mean, I'll just use our covenant to really drive this home for our members. You can't be open to new light if you're asleep. Hmm. Our covenant calls us to be open to all new light. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty clear. You can't, you can't be open to all new light if you're asleep. So there's this, this vigilance is embedded within our own covenant that we've made to one another which of course is a political statement that we make about how we'll live together in community. There's a lot of people sleepwalking on purpose. Don't <laughs> <laughs> get me started on zombies, Mia. You know, I, I recently found out, I just have to put this tidbit out there because you know I like to throw crazy stuff out, but did you know that the idea of a zombie, that what we think of as like the walking dead, that came from Haitians who described, have I told you this already? Haitian, Haitians came up with the idea of zombie. The word comes from Haitian dialect, meaning someone who is, whose body is still alive, but their soul is dead. And it was a reference to the slaves and how they lived under slavery in Haiti. Mm. Whose bodies were still doing the work, but whose souls had already died. Mm. They came up with the title of that for themselves as a as a form of talking about and describing the experience of slavery in Haiti. Mm. So, I mean, talk about poli the politics of uh, all horror is tied back to some political event of, mm -hmm. of of terror. We'll have to do a podcast on like horror and religion or something like that. Oh my gosh! Sign <laughs> me up. Sign <laughs> me up. Minecraft <laughs> Country podcast. Yes. <laughs> well, this was a great conversation. Um, we are looking forward to wrapping up this series with 
our special guest for next time, who's actually been a guest before on our on our series. Yeah. So uh, we look forward to talking about class dynamics with him as it relates to faith and this conversation with politics. Um, but thank you for joining us. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, yeah. man. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.